0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. This is Blair Hodges, and I'm talking today with Richard Lyman Bushman, who wrote a new book called Joseph Smith's Gold Plates, A Cultural History. Welcome, Richard. It's nice to be with you. My pleasure, Blair. Good to see you. In the preface of this book, you talk about how you as a historian, before you were a historian obviously, were born into a Latter-day Saint family, and you grew up as a Latter-day Saint, a member of the LDS or Mormon Church, and that the story of Joseph Smith discovering and translating an ancient record inscribed on gold plates really took hold of you in your youth, and you say that a logical course would have been for you to kind of grow out of that childhood belief, like it seems kind of magical, enchanted, and especially because Smith's story involves things like angels and ancient forgotten languages and you're a trained and celebrated historian of American history so a belief in golden plates could seem sort of quaint especially because Smith said the angel who delivered them to him also took them back so we can't access them we can't verify them which seems like a convenient story but nevertheless you say the plates still have had a hold on you talk about that hold like where that came from what that was like and what it looks like now
2: Well, I don't think the plates uh, ever can be treated in isolation. It's not like I said to myself, uh, you've got to believe in gold plates or not. It's embedded into a story. Joseph Mm -hmm. Smith's early visions, his organization of the church, building the kingdom of God. And it's just one element in a big picture. And it's really, once you're committed to the big picture, you feel that that's sensible for you, that it works, that it's powerful, that you're willing to say it's true, then the gold plates are just a component of it. So that's, I think, what really holds me to the plates. Mm. But actually, when you come to it, the, those witnesses are not to be easily dismissed. I mean, those people said they saw them. They wrote it down. They don't do that. And so, if it were a less portentous item, if it were just some small thing that happened and all these people said it did happen, we would probably say, of course, that's good evidence. The problem is, is it's a witness to such a huge event with so many implications Mm. that we keep saying, well, that's not enough evidence to carry all that weight. So... All around, I've, I've always felt pretty comfortable with the plates. They've never been a source of doubt or contention in my own mind.
1: Hmm. Thinking of your professional career, did you ever wonder if people would take you less seriously if they knew that you had a belief in something like the gold plates or like the story of Joseph Smith, this God interacting with the world?
2: Well, they knew that and they they did. They all thought I was half crazy. <laughs> So I've had many instances of that. Um, When I first came to Columbia, the chair of the department was taking me around and introducing me to people. And I came to this guy was a historian of the Far East. And he said, oh, yes, you're the Mormon. So (laughs) I I realized that there are a lot of people who know I am a historian, but I also have this little component in my mind where I believe all these things. And, you know, it leads to uh, struggles, but uh, it's never been enough to make life unbearable in any
1: way. So you're saying there, there never was a moment when you really had to wrestle and say, ah, maybe this plate story is goofy. Like you didn't have a sort of moment of crisis about a belief in the miraculous like that.
2: Well, the strange thing with me is that I'm a questioner. I have been a doubter. But my doubts all focus on God's existence. Mm -hmm. I was raised under logical positivism, which says that only the things we can sense and the logic that we can deduce from what we sense is real. Everything else is a fabrication. Mm -hmm. And so that's been my problem, the whole ball of wax, not one little component.
1: Yeah, the plates seem peripheral to that almost. <laughs> it's like if you can if you can get around the God thing, then perhaps plates aren't such a stretch, actually. Yeah, that, well, that's the way they yeah. feel. <laughs> you say also that like belief in plates can impact your perspective on life, and for Latter-day Saints it certainly does. I was raised in that tradition as well. I consider myself a Latter-day Saint, and to believe in something like that, or to at least hold out the possibility of it, also then suggests the reality of God, God intervening in the affairs of humans— So believing in the plates would make a difference in a person's life, how they live. But I think more interestingly, you also say that Mormon belief has also made a difference in the history and existence of the plates as well. So it kind of goes both ways. What did you mean by that?
2: Well, there are all sorts of folktales coming down from Asian civilizations and Christian civilizations that we sort of toy with, don't take too seriously but if you find millions of people, many of them are very sensible, very competent, they're your doctors, they're your school teachers, and they all believe them, that adds a lot of weight to it. Then you can't just dismiss it. Uh, I mean, you do dismiss it, but you, you can't easily dismiss it, you have a puzzle. Why do sensible people believe in plates? Mm. And I think that's what's made them enticing is that someone like Tony Kushner who works them into his play Angels in America feels they have sort of literary potency is because you have all these people who actually believe them. And everyone knows that. So it adds sort of a magical element to his his drama and because they are
1: substantialists out of belief. And when Mormons believe in, in the plates they bring something to the table, you're suggesting. So, like, the story of the plates themselves, the belief in the plates, you say, has kind of shaped the history of what meaning Mormons make of them. There is, it's a quote from your book where you're talking about how belief in the plates will impact your perspective on life, but you also say that Mormon belief has made a difference in the history of the plates as well.
2: Uh, yeah, in many ways, it at every turn... We have to treat them differently so that, uh, you know, at one point, they're just the story of a, that a young man tells you, and you just have to translate them. You have to sit there day after day while he dictates. But after a while, as you try to rationalize and explain them, you have to find new context where they make sense. Are they prophesied in the Bible? In the 20th century, that becomes a big issue. And uh, so in the process of proving them, you put them in a new framework, and they take on a new meaning.
1: Early on, critics started referring to this record as the Golden Bible. Yeah. Uh, they would sort of make fun of Joseph Smith, and the name Golden Bible itself kind of gets at the crux of the paradox of the plates, it seems like, because Golden's speaking of some material earthly thing, gold, and then Bible, which speaks of the heavenly, and you're talking about how the plates sort of exist in that in-between space, especially because they're not accessible now, that they were a material thing that speaks of heavenly or eternal things.
2: Yeah. No, I, I I call them a hybrid because they are, you know, gold, sort of a symbol of greed, the gold bug, gold <laughs> rushes are all mm-hmm. efforts to get rich quick, so gold is sort of, has a a little bit of a greed element into it, but Bible you know is the most honored and holy book in the whole civilization and uh, Of course, what I find interesting is that tension between worldly aspiration and heavenly aspiration is built into the text of the book itself. Mm. That's precisely the problem that the Nephite prophets have to deal with, yeah a people who are pursuing wealth and social position and so on versus the humble who follow God. And the collapse of the civilization essentially comes out of that ongoing tension.
1: Yeah, it's really meta. It's <laughs> very, The book, The Medium is the Message, as Marshall McLuhan would suggest. Yeah. And it also speaks to Joseph Smith's own growing understanding. You talk about how in the book, Joseph Smith came to an understanding of the plates himself according to his accounts of how he found them and how he knew about them and what it was like for him to discover them. So his accounts describe a change in his own understanding uh, that his understanding of the plates changed over time. Let's talk a little bit about Joseph Smith confronting the plates and how his understanding shifted.
2: Yeah, well, part of being a Mormon and hearing this story over and over as you grow up is the feeling that it was natural. An angel appears to you, tells you there are plates buried in the hill, and you are to translate them. You hear that enough times, and you think, well, of course, if an angel appears in your room. <laughs> your mission is laid out for you. But what we fail to be able to reimagine is the absolute absurdity of such a request. Joseph Smith had no precedent, nothing to one say that he could translate, and two, that you could find a historical record buried in the hill and that he was to work with it. So that's a problem just of of, uh, sort of adjusting to that idea. But it's complicated by the fact that there was a framework that was well entrenched in his family's culture and really Mm -hmm. in the village culture, that there are treasures in the hill and buried in the hills, that they are valuable, that they are made of gold or silver, and that there is a guardian spirit who will protect them, and so that you have to deal with that guardian spirit. So, the, the natural way to think of these plates is his treasure, and mm-hmm. he tells us outright as he went to the hill, that's how he thought of them, as treasure, and uh, he couldn't get rid of that. So, it took a long time for him to recognize that this, and his family, along with him, that uh, this was a
1: record, a history, not a treasure. And so he saw this as a treasure at first, not a record per se, but over time he came to be inspired to be a translator. And you look through the accounts that Joseph left and that some of his collaborators, some of his uh, cohorts had had written. You also look at some of the things critics were saying about him at the time and, and after. And you say the plates themselves, you propose, helped inspire Joseph to become that translator, that Joseph learned from the plates before he was even translating from the plates.
2: Yeah, that's kind of um, a subtle hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very difficult to prove. But what I'm trying to say is that Joseph Smith, over the four years from when he first heard about the plates until he retrieved them, learned, became convinced they were a record, but not until he got the plates did he think he was to translate, which was totally out of line for him, far beyond his education. It was not something he would ever aspire to. And what persuaded him that? Well, first of all, receiving the plates and finding them with a language on them he tell, told Joseph Knight when he brought them back the plates back from the hill I want them translated so then he finally saw translation is a problem and of course it takes him a while to realize that he is to translate he thinks he'll take them to learned man and they will help him translate or translate them themselves but uh, it wasn't it took months for him to realize that he was to
1: translate. And it seems like there was this crossover in the sort of magical lore that you talked about, the treasure digging, the guardian spirits, that there was some crossover in that culture and then how he ended up translating, which has caused some controversy to the present, even among members of the church, especially when it comes to how Joseph translated the records. So there's an earlier account where Joseph's brother, this is in the 1830s, where Joseph's brother says, Joseph's going to tell us how he translated the Book of Mormon now. Take it away, Joseph. And Joseph gets up and just says, I translated by the gift and power of God, and it wasn't given to the world to know all the particulars. So Joseph isn't being outright, like, here's how it worked, A, B, C. And so we have these different accounts. We have accounts of Joseph using these spectacles that came with the plates, these precious objects. We also have accounts describing him putting a stone in a hat. And for years, the institutional church emphasized the first kind of description of how that worked, but has since come around to say, yeah, the stone in the hat situation seems to be hold up according to the records that we have, and we possibly even have that stone that he used and some members of the church have resisted that and said, no, that's, that's not right. Uh, that doesn't sound right. So maybe talk a little bit about that controversy over the translation method and what it suggests about how Latter-day Saints and others think of the plates and how they were translated.
2: Yeah, it's been quite a, a problem. There are pretty good witnesses, David Whitmer and uh, Emma Smith, notably, who said he used a stone in the hat. Eventually, he probably started out using the the, uh, Yerman Thummim when Martin Harris was translating. But it's remained controversial. And finally, officially, the Church has recognized the validity of these comments about using the seer stone. So that's been accepted. But there are scholars, Jonathan Neville and Jim Lucas, who have said no That's not uh, correct. Uh, It was the Urim and Thummim. He used the Urim and Thummim um, from beginning to end. I stand aside from that controversy. I just don't think there's enough evidence. (laughs) I do think uh, David Whitmer's and Emma Smith's comments have to be taken seriously. I think there's a very good chance he did use the seer Stones, but uh, there's just not enough to nail it down. So we're going to have to live with what we've got.
1: It kind of reminds me of in early New Testament studies, scholars apply one of these criteria to the text to determine whether it was an early account is the criterion of embarrassment. And it's basically like if the text makes a claim that that later Christians might have found uncomfortable or sort of embarrassing, the scholars would say that maybe that increases the likelihood of that <laughs> being an earlier st- thing that was probably a real story and I couldn't help but think about that criterion when I think about the seer stone because it seemed like even Joseph Smith himself would sort of distance himself from some of the earlier treasure digging lore and maybe not be as comfortable saying yeah I put a, I put a stone in a hat and put my face in it like it doesn't it <laughs> the criterion of embarrassment would suggest yeah. that the fact that Emma his own wife would tell that story that could increase the veracity of it or like oh she's she's not going to make that up later yeah. on <laughs> you know
2: well, I think there's some truth to that because I think there was a point at which embarrassment did affect rather profoundly uh, the stories the Smith told of these early years. And it occurred when E.D. Howe published Mormonism Unveiled in 1834, in which he brought charges not so much against the story, but against the family's character. They were told, said mm-hmm. to be liars, that they deceived, that they were no good. They were superstitious, and that was based heavily on their money digging exploits. They were um, thought to be a lower grade because of, of what they had done, the searching for uh, treasure. And so, while before, the family had not been particularly embarrassed by it, from that point on, they made this, from 1834 on, the accounts made every effort to minimize the um, gold-digging history they had, and they actually introduced the word Urim and Thummim to describe the translating instrument, which had been called interpreters or spectacles, because it had a biblical ring. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a very good name, because in the Bible there, Urim and Thummim are two stones at the breastplate that the high priest put in in his Mm -hmm. vest, as it were, in order to Pass judgment on cases that Mm -hmm. were brought before him. They weren't really translating instruments at all, but they gave some dignity and some biblical Mm -hmm. basis to the stones. So, after that, everyone used the word yerim and thummim to describe the stones in order to sort of obscure the treasure-seeking roots of the thing.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: That's Richard Bushman. He's Gouverneur Morris Professor Emeritus of History at Columbia University, and we're talking today about his book, Joseph Smith's Gold Plates, A Cultural History. Well, Richard, your next chapter looks at how the translation itself, how Joseph's Book of Mormon, talks about the gold plates. The book talks about the plates a lot. You say it mentions the plates over 100 times. And what do you get from the Book of Mormon text itself about the physical record?
2: Well, what interests me about the Book of Mormon is how explicit and detailed it is in describing the writing method, how what materials were used and how was it done. You don't get any of that in the Bible. And the Bible doesn't describe what it's written on. If you were just guessing, you'd probably say parchment but it's not really known. But the Book of Mormon talks about it as part of its own self-consciousness about editorial process. It's it's very much aware of people writing down the plates, passing them on to some someone else, insisting that the record must be kept. So it's a book whose editors are describing the process they used to put the book together. And that's something you don't find in the Bible, but is everywhere in the Book of Mormon.
1: Right. And what does that suggest to you in your wider story of looking at the cultural history of the plates, that the record itself is so self-referential?
2: Well, I find it peculiar uh, that it should be, especially because concurrent with the development of the Book of Mormon, there is this movement sometimes called the higher criticism, which is questioning the methods by which the Bible was written. So, the very questions that the Book of Mormon is explicit about are the questions that scholars are asking about the Bible, which the Bible is silent on, but which they're able to sleuth out and devise a system, saying that it's an editorial work, various manuscripts are blended in one way or another, transition points are inserted and so on, and uh, that process, which oh, seems shocking to standard Christians who thought every word was inspired and just came from God's mouth to the written page, they felt uncomfortable hearing about the process the Book of Mormon is very explicit about quite openly. And so, I think, in a way, it confirms the uh, higher criticism description of Scripture as a historical document created by real historical figures writing down their experiences
1: with God. Mm. And the next chapter of the book talks about the impact that the plates had on the lives of Joseph Smith's family and friends. You describe the plates sort of like a dense star that has a gravitational pull that could pull in the lives of many people. And in Joseph's immediate family... It pulled some people together and pushed others apart. Yeah. Talk about his immediate, the family reaction and how the plates impacted them.
2: Well, it's, it's, there's a little mystery there because the family and a small group of people close to them accepted the plates quite easily. They spoke as if, you know, they had them. They spoke of where they were buried. Lucy and Mac Smith and his mother in her account, tells all the stories of hiding them under the floorboards or in a, in the flax or in a barrel of beans or what have you. So they treat them as if they were a reality and had to be accounted for at every moment. All this not having seen the plates and before the witnesses. The witnesses come on the very end of the translation process. For a year and a half before, the family accepted them as a reality. They never questioned Joseph Smith. And how to explain that is hard, except to say that these were, we would say, credulous people willing to believe unusual stories, magical stories, and divine stories. And they just accepted them as as a reality. So I find that quite intriguing.
1: And it raised a lot of different emotions. I mean, the stories that Lucy Mac Smith tells involve anguish and trouble, and also joy and enlightenment. And so, and then for other relatives of Joseph, they thought it was baloney, and yeah. <laughs> they would they would criticize it. So, the gravitational pull of the plates could work; it could pull you in, or it could push you away.
2: No, that's absolutely true. Uh, Joseph's uncle Jesse just thought it was a crock, and uh, was disappointed that his family took an interest in the plates and, you know, almost alienated himself somewhat piteously from uh, the rest of the family. And Oliver Cowdery loved the plates. He went along with it all the while. Martin Harris was suspicious, always uneasy, wanting to believe, not quite able to believe. And so always looking for a witness and all the time frightened to try to look at the plates. You know, he held them on his lap. He saw them because he was at, or he he knew where they were on the table when he translated, but was scared to even try to get a peek because he thought they were so potent that he'd be struck down. It'd be like looking at the face of God. It'd be overwhelming for a human to do that. So he's a believer,
1: but always uncertain about whether they actually were there. And you also point out that Joseph's father didn't ever really tell his side of the story. He didn't talk about the plates element, but his mother had a lot of specific things to say. What do you make of that, that his, his dad was pretty silent about, at least as far as we know?
2: He was pretty silent about everything. <laughs> we have accounts of his dreams uh, in some detail preceding the rest, uh, coming of the plates, But his wife tells the story. He doesn't tell it. I picture him as a man who was sort of tied up within himself, uneasy about his life, whether or not it had been successful, and quite not wanting to sort of tell the whole story, but still a very potent force. Because if he had doubted when Joseph Keat brought the story to him of the plates on that first September uh, day, it probably would have ended the whole enterprise. Joseph wouldn't have believed it, but he was able to
1: believe in the plates. So the story went on. And let's talk about the witnesses. You mentioned this a little bit earlier, but Joseph Smith says he showed the plates to three witnesses who also saw the angel with the plates. They left this testimony to that effect. It's still published in the front of the Book of Mormon today. And then there were eight witnesses that saw the plates themselves and handled them their witness accounts talk about turning the leaves or like seeing, really seeing them and, and interacting with them. And how do you grapple with those witness accounts? What, would a, what kind of questions would a historian bring to those witness accounts?
2: Well, um, I, am, uh, I wish the provenance of the witnesses' statements was more complete. I mean, we don't know who wrote that statement. We don't know if it was signed do know was not repudiated, so I'm not throwing its veracity into question, but it was, um, I just wish we had it nailed down a little bit more. But what really interests me, and I think everyone who reads it senses, is they're so different. As you say, one of them is ethereal, it's God speaking, and the other is very temporal, people just turning things over. I put this in the category of the plates own ambivalence. They are a hybrid item. Are they heavenly? Are they divine? Or are they earthly? And of course, an angel brings them a miraculous item. On the other hand, they're buried in a hill and been sitting there for thousands of years. Joseph had to lug them home. So they have this sort of bifurcated identity of heavenly and earthly at the same time. And the witnesses continue that
1: division. I like how you situate them in terms of the rationalism of the age, right? The witnesses' statements themselves signal what was believed to be persuasive or something Ooh. that could convince people or that would have any weight to begin with. So they put their words to this published book signals the growing skepticism of the age, It's the age of reason. We have Thomas Paine's ideas about human knowledge and rational skepticism. And these ideas were starting to get down into all levels of American society, not just the elite people, but even people like Joseph Smith and and some of his friends and family would, would be plugged into that. And that the witness statements are a product of that kind of cultural need right. to be rational. And
2: it was kind of a class division. You know, there's the educated class people of property, the professionals, both lawyers and and pastors and doctors uh, and printers. For them, the Enlightenment is a presence. But then there are sort of the country folk, and they're still doing treasure seeking, Mm -hmm. believe in all sorts of miraculous items. So the Smiths sort of fall on that border. They're below the enlightened class initially, but then they're sort of brought into this group of educated people and have to encounter them. And so they themselves have to negotiate how they present themselves in order to gain a footing in both camps.
1: And sometimes that was the subject of ridicule itself. I I don't remember if it was Mark Twain. I think it was Mark Twain who said something like he would have a hard time believing it, even if the whole Whitmer family, if mm-hmm. the entire Whitmer family said that they had seen the plates or something.
2: <laughs> right. Huh. Yeah, the, the, um, the statement of the witnesses is, surprisingly, sort of dismissed out of hand. No one really takes them seriously along the line.
1: And you point out that like Latter-day Saints, people who came to believe early on, they would read the Book of Mormon and feel a conviction in it, feel moved by it, believe in its truth. They weren't going around with the witness accounts, you know, showing them around. Yeah. Like, hey, check these witness yeah. accounts out. Like, believers themselves were not really focused as much. Not just critics that might not have been convinced by them, but believers themselves kind of maybe overlooked the witness statements or held them to the side.
2: Yeah, you know, very rational people like John Corle or or Parley Pratt, when they joined the church— how they mention the witnesses, but they don't put their weight on them. They're more interested Mm -hmm. in the biblical connections and biblical support
1: Mm -hmm. for the Book of Mormon. And then you have critics who see the story of the plates as a threat to belief in general, because in this age of skepticism, there were some people that were really fighting for belief. They're, They're trying to uphold faith and make faith seem more rational. And so if you have this kids show up with plates and stories of angels, they start to say, oh, that's that's too fantastical. If we start believing in that, these people are being duped. That doesn't look good for religion because now you can question all kinds yeah. of religious questions about a virgin birth of Jesus or walking on water or all these miracle stories in the Bible start to look questionable if you've got this new story about gold yeah, plates.
2: that's right. And they saw Mormonism as very dangerous, as appealing to sort of the least trustworthy human impulses, this yearning for the miraculous and the fantastic, and really had to be stamped out. Yet they saw it as sort of a, a proto-Islam, that you know the revelation, and and would result in something like Islam, a band of fanatics who would use force to bring people in, under their banner. So it's, um, yeah, it was a lot of very heated rhetoric against Mormonism when it's just a trifling little religion, just, you know, a few thousand people. And yet it was mm. symbolized so much that the Enlightenment feared.
1: Other skeptics you describe tried to use the plates to their advantage, or the, and they would, they would try to trap Joseph Smith. So if he's claiming to be a translator— then they would try to get him in a situation where he would claim to translate something. And you mentioned some of these instances. There's a Greek Psalter that was brought to him. There's the Kinderhook plates, which were manufactured at the time, and people brought them out, and they said, hey, we found this record, and you're a translator. What did you make of those stories? Did they call into question Joseph's story of the plates? Were those effective ways for skeptics to go after Joseph Smith?
2: Well, they didn't prove to be effective, They um, thought they trapped Joseph Smith and caught him falsely trying to translate them, but no one paid much attention to them. What interested me about that was what it says about Joseph Smith's own situation. You know, here he was, he was given this gift to translate, which was, you know, as much a shock and a marvel to him as to anyone, and then told that he was to be at continue as a translator. And there were many documents that were would come to light, which he would translate to the benefit of mankind, but he never knew where they would come from. You know, the Book of Abraham, just as a set of scrolls that a, that a traveling exhibitor was showing to people from that. And, and, uh, so when someone comes with the Greek Psalter, or with this set of buried plates with characters on them, he had to sort of give it a try. Is this my next book of Abraham, my next book of Mormon? So it put him in a funny position. Because Mm -hmm. also there's a lot of pressure from his own people. They were thrilled with this idea of translation from ancient times. They wanted more. Give us another one. And so he, Mm -hmm. he was sort of stuck. Uh, trying to try these things out, but those those two—the solder and the Kinderhook plates—just uh, didn't
1: work. And I think it, it kind of becomes clear that a person's predisposition to believe or disbelieve Joseph Smith helps determine what they make of a Kinderhook plate story, for example. So, if someone's more inclined to believe Joseph, that wouldn't cause a problem. If they're less inclined to, then they would say, "Oh, this guy is a fake," and. I was interested in your point that for Joseph, you could say, oh, he was just an egotistical person who if he's presented with this opportunity to show off his claimed translation skills, of course he's going to just s- say some stuff. Uh, or your take, which is that Joseph's attempt to translate those forgeries, he didn't dismiss them out of hand, signals a belief that in in himself that, okay, I am a translator. I should give this a try and see what I can do. So you could take it as Joseph being sort of a, a con artist or a sincere person who's like, well, I, I, okay, let's let's see what we got here. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Again, yeah, that's exactly the way I, I feel about it. Chapter six, I think, the next chapter might be my favorite chapter in the book. Uh, it's about fascination. And this is a chapter where you trace public reception of the gold plates through the 19th into the 20th centuries. And you trace a really fascinating development here. So, Early critical accounts that we've talked about simply accused Joseph Smith of outright fraud. This is a fraud. This gold Bible story is, is goofy. Within a few decades, though, after Smith was assassinated in the 1840s, you see some attitudes changing. You see the public rhetoric around the plates changing to more an interesting curiosity or a quaint curiosity, right? Yeah, they become a tale to
2: tell. They come at a time when the, printing presses are really coming into their own, all sorts of magazines and newspapers, hunting for material. And they appeal to an audience that wants stories. And (laughs) so there are writers like W.T. Purple who sort of pick up this story. And they're not condemning. They're not trying to stamp Joseph Smith out. They're not calling him an imposter. They think he's an intriguing tale to tell. And so that comes along. And then That's followed by novels like Lily Dougall's at the end of the century, where she really tells the whole story of Joseph Smith in sort of a sympathetic way. You can't just say he's an idiot because that makes the story dull. You have to have some real psychological yearning or striving in there. And uh, so they sort of fit into this interest in the fantastic. And uh, Joseph Smith is very helpful. A very appealing story for them.
1: I loved that arc, seeing the vitriol and sort of anger and panic of the first encounters with the plates, moving into this curiosity, curio-cabinet situation, and then moving into a more psychologically complex and interesting literary approach to Joseph Smith. None of those people saying Joseph literally had plates or was was exactly what he said he was, but becoming more sympathetic over time. And Lily... Lily Dougal's was especially interesting to me. I'd never heard of this. The novel she published in 1899, The Mormon Prophet. Where did you find Lily Dougal?
2: You know, I think it was just a Google search of some some sort. I can't remember how I stumbled onto her. But I was surprised, too, that we've never seen her before. Right. Because, you know, she was a notable figure, you know, a minor novelist, but uh, respected. And uh, a serious religious person. And uh, she took Joseph Smith very seriously.
1: She wanted to
2: understand him.
1: I saw her. I mean, she's not really in the same vein as Fawn Brody, a later historian who wrote a biography of Joseph Smith. But there was some similarities between Lily's take and Fawn's. Uh, Maybe talk about some of those. What stood out to you between what Brody and Dougal were doing? Well, I think
2: they are in a succession. They belong together. Fawn Brody was a little more inclined to the psychological. Lily Duggar was a little bit. She knew William James and talked to him about Joseph Smith. But she has a novelist imagination. (laughs) Fawn Brody would try to uh, root her analysis in psychoanalysis. And (laughs) so she is trying to put Joseph Smith into a type of a deceiver, uh, someone who meets his psychological needs by pretending to be someone and of course, Mormonism resents the little tinge of ridicule. She's always slightly making fun <laughs> of Joseph Smith. He's amusing, but sort of a little bit of a sneer, as she writes. So, um, but there, I think they both are in succession to one another.
1: Mm. It made me want to read Lily. Did you read the whole novel?
2: Yeah, I did. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah. You know, it begins with this woman who sort of stumbles onto Joseph Smith, uh, has this deep experience. She's converted. She marries a Mormon. She goes with the Mormons then finally breaks away and goes back to her family and uh, someone named Ephraim, who she was destined to marry and did marry in the end. But all the while being sympathetic, but also rational because the heroine, is sort of in a trance when she joins the church, is baptized, and then marries, and then is sort of disillusioned, and then carries on out of loyalty to her husband, all the while sort of speaking as the rationalist, pointing out the flaws uh-huh. in the story. Finally, her husband is shot at Hans Mill, and so she is hmm. free to go back to her family in her old life. So there's this sort of this episode from 1830 to 1838, let's say, where she's in the Mormon
1: camp and coming on. And overall, within your history, Lily comes at the tail end of this arc where the plates go again from sort of threat, fake, fraud, to curiosity, to an interesting device that we can explore a lot of different ideas with. And when we think about exploring a lot of different ideas, your chapter on art talks about how artistic approaches to the plates shift over time. And these include poetry, uh, portraits, paintings, and how the things that people are writing about in painting shift over time. Early on, you say we see epics, the rise and fall of civilizations, bloody battles and fallen peoples, and that art You know, you can see examples of that over time, but it seems to be displaced over time, especially within Mormon art, into more of the sacred relic, into something holy, like the plates don't exist in the context of bloody battles, but maybe being buried in the earth for Joseph Smith later on or being delivered to him. So talk a little bit about those differences in the kind of art that you explored for this book.
2: Well, there's a strange disjuncture there. Poetry about the plates... From the eighteen nineties on, for almost a whole century, is absorbed with the plates as the remnant of a lost civilization. And the note in the bottle that tells the story of great people who died. The the artists, the painters, didn't follow that No, They're more interested in in Ron and I revealing the preach to Joseph Smith, the moment, the beginning of the restoration. And so it takes a while. And really, Arnold Freiburg, so far as I can tell, I may have missed something, uh, is the first one in the 40s and 50s to tell the story of a great people who crashed at the end and hmm. those famous paintings. So by sort of the 1950s, is kind of the high point of that. Clinton Larson is writing his stories in this vein of a fallen civilization, Freiberg's painting. And then he's not totally displaced. He still has pictures in in the current Book of Mormon, but the lost civilization theme is sort of moderated. And uh, Hmm. we don't think a lot about that, though it's part of our background because everyone who's brought up Mormon knows those Freiberg paintings are memorable. You can't forget them. So we still, that's one element of the way we think of the plates as the bearer of this horrible episode in human history.
1: You're also exploring art that is produced not just in the United States, but around the world as Mormonism itself has spread. There are people in different countries, different continents that are interacting with the plates. What did you learn from your study of the plates in art globally?
2: Well, I'm sure I haven't covered the whole waterfront there because there's so much going on in art. What my access to global art is through the triennial exhibitions at the Church History Museum, where they bring in art from all over the world, and then a few other things. And the way I try to make sense of this is that some people, like potters, there are examples of potters taking the plates and putting them into native myths. So they become almost totally absorbed into Navajo or Hopi myth stories. Then there, the, the people who submit to the church triennial, they are trying to find a way of speaking that will be recognized by the judges and so they're more inclined to take the familiar stories of an angel appearing to Joseph Smith, giving him the plates, and dolling them up in their sort of native costume, their native art forms, and so on. And then there are others like uh, Coco, uh, Jorge uh, Santanilo Coco, Coco San hello, who really just give us the Mormonism we know, but in his own idiom which is what he calls sacral Cubism, uh, sort of borrowing from Brock and Picasso's Cubist period. So that it's done in a number of different ways and really I think represents what happens when two cultures encounter one another. How do they translate the items from one culture into another culture? So I think it's it's a beautiful uh, example of how artists are the ones who negotiate cultural differences and sort of help us to understand one another.
1: And people who check out the book can see examples of that art. You have pictures in the book. The book is called Joseph Smith's Gold Plates A Cultural History. It's by Richard Lyman Bushman, who again is the Gouverneur Morris Professor Emeritus of History at Columbia University and also author of Joseph Smith Rough Stone Rolling, a biography of Joseph Smith. Richard's a distinguished scholar of American history who also co-founded the Center for Latter-day Saint Arts. All right, Richard let's talk about an intriguing question that a child wrote to a church magazine. They asked why the plates weren't preserved in a museum so that people would know that Joseph Smith was telling the truth. And you know, the article itself, I think the answer is something like, well, you know, we need to have faith. And so this is something we can exercise faith in. But you were more interested in the question of if we did have them and they were in a museum, how would they be situated? Because museums place artifacts in a context. They tell a story. They put similar objects around them. They put them in a surrounding narrative. So if if the record was available for a museum, how might a museum curator situate them and you talk about four different possibilities. and the first one is the simple story of Joseph Smith, a young boy being led by an angel to the plates. This is something that you know maybe we would see in a church museum where they would kind of present the church's current emphasis as the record being a testament of Jesus Christ and so on. Another example you say would be the skeptic story of uh, this plates as an imposture. They're contrived to deceive the public. What would a display look like? With, if that was the museum's approach? Well, I think the um, even if you call them an imposture,
2: you have to explain where the idea of the imposture came from. And that is a big problem. It's not altogether evident where Joseph Smith would get the idea of plates. So there has to be something worked out on that. And the people who have uh, have dealt with that question uh, what to say that they were sort of a psychological need, or they say that uh, they grew out of his treasure-seeking. And so I think if you, and I sort of accept that argument, they, they were connected to his treasure-seeking, you'd have to somehow put in the in the display along with the plates examples of people seeking gold coins and what they did at night in order to discover treasures in the earth. So you somehow have
1: to evoke that. So maybe some like old rusty shovels from the time, some dirt from the hills, some picture, maybe some artist depictions of the mounds that, uh, that people would dig through, things like that. So that would, I think that
2: would be the best way to talk about them as a fabrication of his.
1: And you say that it is sort of connected to that. What would you say if a person said, well, that that signals the plates are fake, like that they just came out of this story. How do you make the connection from, yeah, they are connected to this money digging lore. They also are a real religious object.
2: Well, I think um, there, I think you have to, well, of course, the witnesses would be part of the exhibit that they actually saw the plates. But I think more... Uh, descriptions of the plates in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon really invents the plates. It's one thing to say, ah, there are gold plates with treasure on them. But the Book of Mormon elaborates who made them, what was written on them, how were they passed down. And so if Joseph Smith is making it up, he didn't make it all up before 1827, you know, there's a lot going on when the Book of Mormon is, is being written. And so I think some of that, of passages from the
1: Book of Mormon would have to be tacked on the wall in nearby
0: mm.
1: plates. And if they wanted to situate them as an ancient artifact then, what about that? What could be placed alongside it? Are, are there things that match the idea of these metal sheets with records on them and so on?
2: Well, of course, that's sort of a small industry, maybe not a small industry, a big industry, that people frustrated by the fact that the Bible doesn't speak of gold plates and there's not a lot about it in history have searched, scoured the earth and especially the area uh, of Palestine and nearby for examples of writing on plates. And there have been many found. They don't quite connect. They don't tend to be long histories. They tend to be memorabilia or a, a memorial to a great event, a, a transaction, or a, uh, a great king's conquest or something of that sort. But you would want to show many examples of writing, including examples of writing in Latin America, around Colombia, uh, Venezuela. There are have been found artifacts written on gold or Tumbaga, which is an alloy of gold, talking about the people. So
1: yes, that would definitely uh, be part of the exhibit. When you're situating the plates alongside other kind of sacred records and relics, you talk about how they kind of stand alone. You compare them to Moses's stone tablets. You talk about the Tibetan Buddhist terma, which are these texts that are said to be buried in the earth, by a great, written by a great master, that are later dug up and translated By a contemporary in sort of a Joseph Smith-like story, but when you think about those contexts, you still say the plates remain unique.
2: Yeah, well, I'm saying two things at once. They don't quite fit. They're not quite like the tablets, as as we all sense. They're not like a relic, which has a different function. Relics are to gain the powers of heaven through a saint who is associated with the relic. And then the term uh, The substance on which they're written, whether of leaf or bark or whatever, is of no import and is very temporary. So they don't ever fit perfectly. But what I really want to say is through the history of world religion, there have been objects that have borne messages and have promised contact with the divine. And the Book of Mormon sort of is one, not completely parable, but similar. It sort of belongs in that large contingent of holy material things.
1: It seems like each of those things kind of stands alone. Maybe the Quran as well, there's this idea of the eternal Quran that existed that was sort of given through Muhammad. So an idea of a text that exists just eternally in Allah's existence or whatever. So each of these, the terma. the the stone tablets, the plates, they all kind of have their own things that kind of set each of them apart. That's right. But
2: I think the plates, one reason they seem so weird to people who just stumble across them is that they don't have a category for placement. Where do you locate Mm -hmm. if you're just someone who stumbles across Chosen Smith's stories? And I'm hoping to provide the context it doesn't really explain everything, but uh, allows you to say, "Ah, oh, yes, well, that's what religious people do. It's like visions. You know, the first vision does not stand alone. It's much easier to understand because all sorts of other people and and visions of God and Christ and angels. So it's a matter of recognizing the global world religious scene and finding a place for the plates."
1: That's Richard Bushman. We're talking about Joseph Smith's Gold Plates, a cultural history. We'll take a break and be right back with more on the New Books Network.
0: Hmm, is it
2: that late? Dad will be here any minute. Better tell mother she's needed in the kitchen.
1: Ah, yes, the classic nuclear family. Dad, mom, two kids, a white picket fence, and everybody knows their role. I grew up believing this was the one right way to be a family, and I believed that until I started getting to know real people who didn't fit that mold. We're watching this old nuclear family model explode in real time, but we don't need to hit the panic button. We can let curiosity lead the way. I'm Blair Hodges, host of Family Proclamations. I'm on a quest to find out everything I can about family, gender identity, and sexuality, and I want you to join me. On this podcast, I'm talking to best-selling authors about marriage, divorce, cohabitation, single adulthood, parenting, childlessness, adoption, fostering, gender identity, human biology, and lots more. We'll learn about different families and identities, past, present, and future. So please get ready to surrender old stereotypes and embrace new perspectives. There's no single way to be a family, and every kind of family has something we can learn from. Check out Family Proclamations anywhere you get your podcasts and at familyproclamations.org presented by Fireside with Blair Hodges.
2: Ah, dinner time. This is the time for pleasant discussion in a thoroughly relaxed mood.
1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. This is Blair Hodges. We're with Richard Lyman Bushman today talking about his new book, Joseph Smith's Gold Plates, A Cultural History. Richard, let's talk about re-enchantment, something that scholars have been fascinated by over the years. A century ago, there was a German sociologist, Max Weber, who said that as education grows, as rationality spreads, the world becomes disenchanted. And other scholars more recently have argued that enchantment persists in a lot of places. It's not just a story of enchantment going away. So this question is a two-parter. First, how do you define enchantment and are the plates themselves a possible source of spreading enchantment today? Do they work as an object of re-enchanting the world?
2: Well, it's a lot of people who would associate themselves with enlightenment, with scholarship, with sensible, modern reason, believe that enchantment is a useful idea. It's useful as a way of hypothesizing some great force, some spiritual force that brings people together. It could be humans who, you know, we have a kinship with the South Pacific or Africa or East Asia because we're all humans and there's something that unites us. So that is one way of saying enchantment is useful as a way of thinking. Another way of thinking is that there's some force like this that unites us with nature, that we have to respect trees and animals because somehow we're all part of something. So re-enchantment nowadays means hypothesizing spiritual forces uh, that bring us together. In most areas, those who uh, advocate this line of thinking don't necessarily want to go back to standard religion. They're not going to talk about necessarily about the resurrection of Christ or the parting of the, the Red Sea or the gold plates. So, I'm not sure that uh, the gold plates have a, a role, but I think, in some general way, the Mormon way of thinking that presumes there are powers beyond our normal senses that prevail upon the world, that create the world, that link us as brothers and sisters, and which allow for the appearance of gold plates we are, there's some kindred spirit between us and those who are enchanted who we'll believe in the revival of enchantment. So, I, I'm not sure that the cold plates themselves will overfigure very largely in the re-enchantment movement, but they are a signal that we are kindred with those who favor bringing back enchantment.
1: For you, over the course of this project, did your view of the plates in general change? How did doing this project impact your own experience because you approach it as a historian, but also hold the plates as a kind of believer? So how did how did you change in the course of this project, which has you've been working on for, I think, a decade at least, yeah. right? Yeah.
2: I think what yeah, most interested me was the problem of conceptualizing the plates. You know, when you are, you brought up bladder and you say, plates are just there. You know, think about them, they're a problem. Why can't we see them? Are they really real? And so on. But how you can see them where they fit had never occurred to me. And realizing that they are problematic and that people have adopted many ways of thinking about them. That has been very interesting to me, sort of loosening up the grip of my Mormonness and seeing that other people could come at them in quite different ways. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's interesting. You know, the plates call forth the imagination of a lot of people mm-hmm. in order to find a way of making sense.
1: It was fun to see the questions and concerns and beliefs that people brought to the plates as they tried to make sense of that story. Yeah. And as you said, I, I also found it really interesting yeah. to see so many different ways that people accounted for them. Right. I think so. When you think about this book project, how do you situate it within the overall arc of your career? How does it align with the, the kind of work that you've done before? How does it make sense within the work of Richard Bushman?
2: I'm becoming a little more self-conscious about myself partly through people asking questions like you're doing right now. But I realize that um, what interests me is just what we've been talking about, locating events, people, objects in their culture, because nothing stands alone. Everything is connected in some way or another. And uh, that's what I've been doing is, you know, and I, wrote my first book about revivalism, The Great Awakening. I was trying to say, what's going on in society? What bears and all the people who go through at The Great Awakening? And the same is true for the book on refinement, which talks about the material world, you know, mansions and fine clothing and dancing and street and city design. What is the culture that affects decisions, gives value to what's been done? And so the gold plates, is exactly that. It just carries on that methodology into an object that's important in my life. I I will add one more thing to that and, and another side of it. For some reason... When I write about my own people my own faith, my own tradition, I'm attracted to difficult problems. You know, Leonard Arrington began writing about Mormonism in a way that was meant to make sense to the world at large. And the Great Basin Kingdom is a masterwork, but it's about the economy. And others who wrote, you know, they write about railroads or this or that. I wrote about Joseph Smith, so I had to take out all of his revelations, the first vision on down. And so I was willing to try to make a context for that. And then for this book, I take the most problematic and troublesome part of all his revelations to gold plates and try to make sense of that. So I don't know if I'm trying to pursue my own as struggles or my own concerns about my religion, but I want to sort of dig out the most difficult problem and try to cope with it.
1: And maybe describe the difficulty one more time, because when some people hear about Joseph Smith and think about difficulty, they might think about something like revelations about polygamy, right? Yeah. Or or things that, that are troubling to the moral consciousness of people today. So when you're talking about the plates as a problem, it seems like you're, you mean that in a really specific way about what problem they are.
2: That's right. Uh, I'm less concerned with social problems like polygamy, like, gay marriage, and so on. I have to deal with them, but they don't intrigue me. What intrigues me is reality. What are the things that are real? It goes back to my original concern about is God real? I want to know if the manifestations of God in my own particular faith and the revelations of things holy and unseen, if they are real. Well, that's what I've August time.
1: Even then, it seems like for believing Latter-day Saints, the possibilities are still open if you even accept the no. plates, because Joseph's story, we, Latter-day Saints tend to tie everything together. If he said this, and this was true, then this yeah. is true, and this is true. We, Melissa Inouye, a friend of ours, has described it as Christmas lights, that if you pulled one of the Christmas lights out, the whole string can yeah. go out. So if you pull the plates out, the whole Mormon yeah. string goes out. If you were to pull polygamy out and say, oh, Joseph was wrong about that. That was him being lustful and whatever. You pull that light out, then the then the plates lights go out. And it seems like you, that, that's not necessarily the case for you, that you would say Joseph could be accurate about the plates and, and maybe inaccurate about other things. And the story the Book of Mormon tells also includes that, that this is a scriptural record that says it has mistakes in it. This is what's right. interesting to me in the Book of Mormon is the text itself says, look, there are mistakes in here. Forgive us for those. Be glad to right. God that you can see those. Right. So it seems to me that that you're, that you're not like, if the plates are real, everything else is right. But rather, if the plates are real, wow, the plates are real. Yeah. <laughs> <You
2: know? laughs> well, if the plates are real, and one more step, there are supernatural forces at work in our experience. But I agree with you entirely. Yeah. It doesn't mean that Joe Smith never made an error in his life. So we have to live with that.
1: Let's talk about... Regrets, challenges, and surprises, Richard, to conclude our interview today. This is something that I do in another podcast I host called Family Proclamations, where I love to ask the authors at the end of the discussion if there's anything they regret about the book now that it's out. And there's always things. I mean, it could be a couple typos or something. Or it could be like, oh, I wish this chapter was beefier or whatever. So I ask about that. I also ask if there's any main challenge that they faced in the course of writing their project or if there's something that surprised them most and we kind of spoke to that one I, I asked you about like how you changed in the course of writing this book so if you have any regrets or challenges that are interesting that uh, I'd love to hear about those before we go
2: well I have a response that was true for rough stone rolling as well I always feel that within my subject matter there are depths I have not plumbed and I can't necessarily describe what they are, or I probably would have written about them in the book. But, you know, I always feel like Joseph Smith's character, there is something deeper and more interesting. If I would have thought about it another 20 years, I could have discovered. And the same with the plates. I mean, they imply so much, and they're so mysterious, and I think wonderful, that I feel a, a little bit pedestrian in my treatment, try as I would to get one more Mm. layer of of meaning. So I would say that's um, my one uncertainty. Uh, And I do have this view that the more you think about something, the more you see. And if I would have spent another couple years, I would have seen more. But on the other hand, if I would have have spent (laughs) another 20 years, I would have seen more. So eventually you just have to. Give it as it is and uh, hope for the best.
1: <laughs> That's Richard Lyman Bushman. He's Governor Morris Professor Emeritus of History at Columbia University, the author of many books, including the ones we mentioned today, Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling, and Joseph Smith's Gold Plates, A Cultural History. He is a distinguished scholar of American history who also co-founded the Center for Latter-day Saint Arts and one more very trivial question, Richard. I, I swear I saw a cover of the book somewhere that said Joseph Smith's Golden Plates. Am I making that up or was there a possible different title happening and, and it went from golden to gold? I don't think so,
2: but the distinction was a source of um, terror at one point. <laughs> I, never, I never even raised the question in my own mind about gold versus golden. And I know it means a lot uh, to some people who insist. If you say gold, it sounds like it's pure gold, which would be very difficult. If You say golden, it's an alloy, which most people now believe it was an alloy. And the fact that I used gold plates, I thought, geez, did I make it? Should it have been golden? <laughs> and so I went back to all the early accounts by Joseph Smith on how those plates were described. And he invariably used the word gold. So I felt like I, I would escaped that error. so I'm, I'm willing to stand by gold
1: plates. I think that really speaks to the, the fact that the plates have, can really get people wrapped in those two letters, E N, like taking those away or including those can mean a lot to people. And the plates themselves really have that, again, that gravitational pull that you described. That's true. Well, Richard. Thanks a lot. This has been a lot of fun. The book was great. I want to say personally, I just love spending time with your voice. Reading the book was so enjoyable, especially on that level. Uh, It's fun to spend time with you and be in your head with you. So I really appreciate you sharing your gifts, sharing your your skill and your craft and sharing your stories.
2: Well, I'm very pleased. I still have appreciative readers, Blair, and your opinion I value as much as anyone's.
1: Mm, Thank you.